I'm Evelyn Glennie, and you're listening to the Evelyn Glennie Podcast. I'm often asked, what advice would you give to a young musician starting a career in music? Well, the answer can be like a moving target, because it very much depends how much fire in the belly that particular individual may have to be the director of their own journey. But today I'm excited to be chatting with exactly the kind of musician who has taken the bull by the horns regarding her own journey thus far. Jess Gillam is one of the UK's rising stars, not only as an immensely talented saxophonist, but as a broadcaster on radio and television as well. And she's also an advocate and spokesperson towards music education. And although in her early 20s, Jess has completely embraced the fact that the business she is in is indeed more than only being the instrumentalist. Jess, thank you for spending this time chatting with me. It's really, really good to see you. I'd rather see you in person than virtually, (laughs) but there we are. That's the the times that we're living in at the moment. And it's interesting because you've so often said that music is all about people and people uniting, people sharing and people listening. And of course, during this whole lockdown period, you created the Virtual Scratch Orchestra. And was that a, a, a thought because of lockdown or had you been thinking about this idea pre-lockdown? I'd actually been thinking about the idea of, of bringing people together in, in orchestras and playing together before lockdown, but ideally in person. And then lockdown opened up this abyss of time because we had no performances. Uh, so I thought I would try it virtually and try and bring people together with the amazing technology we have. So, you know, no matter what the standard of playing, you wanted to bring people together. Was that was that the idea? Yeah, I think we can do so much learning from people who are just one step ahead of us or people who are 10 steps ahead of us. I think often when when I've worked with really young children, they often respond to somebody who's much closer to their age so they can relate to them so they can see the kind of incremental steps they can make to be able to become a better musician or a better instrumentalist. Mm. So I think the idea of bringing different levels together is something we could do more of, I think, to to help uh, younger people on their learning journeys. Yeah. And I mean, you're of the age whereby you totally embrace technology, you know, social media, websites, you're very active on, on all of those platforms. And, you know, has your... I suppose listening and communication, because we've all been almost hostage to using technology since since being locked down. I mean, do you, do you feel that this is there's been advantages to that, um, or are you pretty eager to get back into to giving live performances? I think it's I think a bit of a mixture. I think the the capability of being able to reach a global global audience is incredible and to be able to bring people together from every corner of the world and connect in a way that just wouldn't be physically possible uh, in real life I think is incredible but also nothing will ever replace the energy that live music can give like even for now with this now for instance it's wonderful to be able to talk to you on zoom but there's so much that is missing from the human interaction and I think that's the same with music there's a certain amount that you can do but it, it doesn't replace the the kind of live music experience I don't think Mm -hmm. and has this whole experience made you think oh heavens you know I might need a 
a plan B, a plan C, or even although you're very active, you know, as a player, as a, I mean, as a, a musician, as a, a broadcaster, and, and, you know, you, you write very passionately about music education and that music is for all, but do you, or have you thought about any other avenues that you might explore that has come about, you know, due to the, the, the performances having, uh, you know, almost been eliminated from the diary? I think on a practical level, I kind of had to because I am 22 and don't have, you know, don't have a huge bank of money just waiting. So from a purely kind of practical point of view, I think so many musicians have had to reassess the the situation and and reassess how we're living, which is just for me, it's it's kind of devastating. Just really sad that we, you know, it's a way of life. Playing music is is what I live for and what I do, and to have to have thought about other options purely from a practical perspective is saddening for me but it's something that I've I've tried to diversify as much as possible to create income streams and also to create new opportunities to reach people um, and I'm determined to to make it work and make it happen but I mean seeing all of the many friends who've had to move back in with their parents and, and move out of their home get a completely different job somewhere else because they just can't survive and I think it's really it is absolutely devastating to see it happening and kind of falling away around us Mm. and I suppose really you know what I've noticed about you is this kind of grit and determination you know um I suppose it's that northern stubbornness, which I, I kind of <laughs> recognise myself, you know. But um, nevertheless, I, I think it does take a particular mindset, though, to to think about the fact that, well, hold on a second, you know, what other things could I possibly uh, approach or try to do? Um, and being prepared for it not to work um, and being prepared to, to give it your all, I mean, to, to work hard at that and um, so I think it takes a, a certain kind of mental uh, strength to to go forward with certain things that I suppose make you you know explore the the unknown um, and that's I suppose what pushes all of our boundaries at the end of the day and I wonder as well maybe you have some of that because of the instrument as well because there's there's not such a you know there isn't such a there's not a set path. There isn't a straight path to follow. You're kind of forging the path, and and having. I think the instrument brings a lot of that mentality with it. It's a, mm. it's a, a unique instrument, as is percussion, and kind of creating your own. You have to create your own world in which to exist and in which to operate. Mm. And I think um, I've been brought up in an environment by my mom and dad, that super hardworking kind of working class background, and that's how I was brought up. But then also the instrument, I think, lends itself to that kind of way of working. Yeah, absolutely. It's a really interesting point that that um, you know we don't have a well. I suppose in my case, percussion is the oldest family of, of instruments <laughs> around, but yet the repertoire is perhaps the most recent. And and just sort of looking back, um, you know, when you were. Uh, uh, a young child I mean can you remember your first musical memories um my first strong musical memories are making music in the carnival band where I started so my dad was teaching um teaching drums actually like samba percussion wow um and we had people come up it was a in Barrow in Cumbria was a carnival center a community carnival center there was dance stilts backpacking drums 
everything, you name it, um, was there and gave people the opportunity to access the arts and access music. And making music and hearing music in the carnival setting is probably my first strong musical memory. Amazing. And that was obviously before you were introduced to the sax or or, or not? Yeah, 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 so drumming, I tried drumming first and I had no rhythm and no coordination. And then at the same centre, I tried saxophone. Um, so it was saxophone, trumpet and drumming was kind of the, the band that made up the, it was like a samba band. Mm. And what was it about the sax that you found intriguing? I think, so I was seven when I picked it up and I made a sound straight away. And I think the intensity of that sound, just the... The, the kind of it was just the most visceral experience to hear this sound just kind of hit my whole body and I was just quite overwhelmed by it and I, I still so vividly remember that moment of the first time I made a sound and then it was just so associated with joy from playing it in the carnival band it just become just became something that was about having a fun time developing uh, getting better and it just became something that I really really loved. It's interesting because it seems to me that whenever I've been beside a saxophone um, and all the variations of, of um, you know the, the saxes that, that we have there's a tremendous amount of vibration that comes from the instrument itself and that's just standing beside it you know so I can't imagine what it must be like to actually hold it in your hand to blow that mouthpiece and to you know the way that it just curves in front of you and and the length of it and and I remember at the age of 10 I played the clarinet for a year can you believe Ah. and I loved that direct contact with the instrument you know something that was there vibrating in your mouth and through your fingertips and and the, you know your upper part of, of the body and it was really really interesting and and I wonder whether that's something that you um, feel yourself and and whether in fact with drumming because you're often detached from the instrument because of the sticks whether that had any influence at all on your choice Uh, no it's really interesting because I think it really did (laughs) I think that kind of direct the direct contact and the direct kind of what whatever you put through the saxophone is a real representation of what whatever you put through it on an emotional and a technical level and it's the same I I tried piano I started piano before I started saxophone and I just couldn't progress I just couldn't I couldn't fall in love with the instrument in the same way because it felt so strange to me that everything felt really external where the saxophone really felt like an extension and an extension of my voice and it sounds cliche Mm. to say but it really did feel like it was connected and a part of me so I think yeah that was a, a big a big draw. Yeah, absolutely. And one person who's been hugely influential in your journey as a musician has been the wonderful saxophonist John Harl. And uh, and of course we know John as an amazing musician, very diverse musician and a wonderful composer and producer and just an all-round incredible person. And I remember many years ago having the good fortune of of collaborating with him at the Lucerne Festival in Switzerland and uh, we gave a a percussion and sax concert and it was just absolutely amazing and I was just so blown away by the expanse of his sound, you know, it was absolutely enormous, it really was, it just seemed to you know, engulf your whole being. He almost blew me off the stage. You know, it was such a powerful experience, actually. 
and uh, and but you've obviously worked very very closely with John since about the age of 15 I think yeah 15 16 I started studying yeah yeah so he was your teacher or or guide a mentor yeah he was my my teacher and it's interesting what you say about his sound because that was the thing that I found so inspiring when I first heard him just this kind of epic power that you just can't imagine comes from a human and I, I when I first heard his sound I was maybe 11 12 and I just thought this isn't the this cannot be the instrument that I am playing it just can't be the same thing because I just couldn't imagine that a sound like his could come out of the the saxophone and so it was yeah that that kind of all-encompassing visceral sound that is just even when it's quiet even when it's playing pianissimo Mm. it fills the room it's just so full-bodied and um yeah like really really vocal as well absolutely the presence of it Mm. is is quite amazing and i mean i i remember uh working with yolanda brown and uh you know an incredible player amy dixon of course and and it seems interesting that a lot of the the players are are female players um, I also remember when I was a student, um, there seemed to be an influx of saxophone quartets and they were all women players. And uh, is, is this your experience, you know, knowing the sax world on a global scale? Do you think that there's a, a good balance between women and, and men players? I think when I was growing up, I actually didn't have so many female role models, saxophonists. There was Barbara Thompson, who was a huge inspiration, and again, her sound and and musical personality. But for me, in the classical world, there weren't so many female players to look up to. But every time I went to a saxophone course, or every time I studied, it was very 50-50. So it seemed very strange to me that there would seem to be no one at the very top that was female that was kind of, you know, um, had followed a similar path to John or had kind of the same level of, of success and now I kind of as I'm um, like progressing further on and seeing more female players come up through the like younger players I think it's hopefully the balance will kind of even out but for me in, in the classical saxophone world particularly there weren't so many female role models and even in jazz there were there were a handful but it definitely felt male dominated. <laughs> Yeah, really, really interesting that. And I can relate to, to what you're saying, you know, in, in, in the world of percussion. Um, but in your mind, you know, with the, with the, the technicalities of playing the sax and the, the, the sound and the developments of the instrument itself, um, what have been the changes over the years? You know, have you seen anything from starting out as a young player to where you're, you are now as a young professional? Have there been any developments at all? in in any of the mechanics of the instrument? It's actually incredible. Ever since Adolf Sachs invented the saxophone, it's hardly changed. His design was so perfect and such an incredible design that there have been a few things that have been tweaked and a few keys that have been added and some of the kind of uh, mechanics have changed, but not nothing fundamental. His design was just as it should have been, just so brilliant that, that we kind of don't really see very many developments and, and not not huge technical developments in how they're made of course we explore with different metals and different mouthpieces and ligatures and crooks but the actual body itself is so brilliantly designed that not very much change is required really mm. so when you're working with composers to to write new pieces of music for you i mean is it pretty important that you're there with the composer to explain the instrument 
for them to understand your sound, to understand you as the musician, um, your desires as a musician for, for a, a new piece of music. Is that quite important for you or do you just have perhaps an initial meeting with them and then let them go off and write something? Um, it's really different uh, depending on who the composer is and how it, the commission kind of comes about. Uh, sometimes I don't want to be so involved in the process. I don't know if you ever have this when you're working with new composers, ah. but sometimes I, when, I can, when I've had a meeting with the composer and I see that they have such a strong idea sometimes I don't want to get in the way of that I just want them to kind of form the piece and then we can maybe have a discussion whereas other commissions I work really really closely with the composer right from the beginning and I'll send sound clips and recording clips of of drafts and they'll tweak things over and over but I think it really depends on their um musical personality and the way they work because everybody works so differently they, they do and and i understand that and and i think that since the explosion of you know the the internet and we can communicate and and composers can send examples of little ideas and so on and just check things out much more quickly than than if we had to arrange meetings <laughs> and so on i think the collaboration is is i think definitely enhanced really in a way because we we have that possibility um, I think probably in my instance a lot of composers um, really want to just keep checking on the types of instruments um, available and what the ranges might be because of course we don't yet have the Stradivarius marimba or something like that we have very nice marimbas but they're still growing as regards to the pitches and so composers are always trying to you know check on on the particular uh, ranges that that we have. So, what has been the wackiest thing you've been asked to do on a sax? Oh, I'm not sure actually. <laughs> Sometimes, you know, I think the a piece I'm working on with a um, composer at the moment, Edmund Finnis. Uh, he'd like everything to be. It's not so wacky, but he'd like everything to be almost everything in the piece to be completely subtone. So everything that I've ever trained to do, the whole sound that I've worked to kind of create everything he wants kind of under the voice and sotto voce. So everything is so ah. quiet, which just feels so alien to me because I'm working all the time to kind of create this full sound and it's really, you know, he wants everything super, super quiet and under the voice. Um, but Wacky is kind of, I think... Composers for saxophone like to write without the saxophone actually making noise on the saxophone itself. So whether it's tapping, mm -hmm. tapping the keys, tapping rings on the keys, um, the sound of pulling the mouthpiece out, it's kind of anything to anything that isn't playing the actual saxophone. Yeah, and, and it's funny when you mention you know a composer wanting you to you know project in such a a minimal minimal way because that's unbelievably challenging I think for any player and extremely exhausting as well you know the the energy spent in order to control that um, believe it or not can sometimes be more taxing than than trying to give a full-blown you know sound in a way I understand even from a percussionist's point of view that it's extremely difficult to keep that melodic or or not necessarily melodic but that sort of phrase or, or story going when it's so so quiet so it's a, a great challenge I think which I know you'll do brilliantly <laughs> of course so uh, <laughs> oh but you're you, you know you're a wonderful communicator and 
you know, both through your instrument and with the spoken word. And do you think it was a natural step for you to, I suppose, embrace the world of broadcasting? And, um, you know, you have the classical life for BBC Radio 3 at the moment. And, and do you see yourself doing more of this line of work? I really enjoy it. And for me, it's, um, again, I just, I, I love telling stories through music, whether that be through speaking about music or playing music, being able to connect with people and connect with audiences. And it can't, it wasn't planned at all. I, I'd never had aspirations to become a presenter. And then as soon as I started doing it, I really kind of grew a deep love for, for communicating through word and, and asking people about their stories, finding out about their musical loves and their, their lives. And it's something I'd really, really love to continue um, for my whole career, hopefully. Yeah, and I think it's a, it's a wonderful asset to, to have. You know, it, it often allows us to think about the music and the instrument and, and all sorts of things that we think we know about, but actually to express them in a, through another means, I suppose, and to share that can be quite revealing sometimes and can help us, you know, in how we might interpret something, um, you know, interpret a piece of music. It may change our ideas, especially when you're discussing things with other people. So, so yeah, I hope you, you certainly continue <laughs> with that for sure. And I think it's really encouraging for people to... Um, you know, see that there's a young musician who is basically in the initial steps of their uh, performing career, you know, embracing this type of thing, because that takes a lot of work and dedication too. You know, it isn't something that you can just turn up at the studio and hope for the best kind of thing. <laughs> so I, I very much admire admire you in, in, in doing all of that in an already busy, busy schedule. Does the travel sit well with you when you're gallivanting throughout the world? Are, are you quite happy being on a plane and, and hotels and different you know, spaces, meeting different people? Does that sit well with you? It's interesting. Now, having not done very much of it for the past six months during lockdown, you kind of forget what it feels like. And then as I'm starting to perform mm. gradually more, it is. I I love seeing the world and being able to travel, but I... There are some parts of it I don't like, and that's all of the carrying. <laughs> I get such a bad back from carrying everything. I'm just like a pack horse when I go travelling. But I think, <laughs> no, being able to experience different cultures and see different reactions um, and how people kind of respond to music in different areas of the world is fascinating. How different audiences react in Japan compared to America, compared to England. is just, I think it's it's fascinating and I... I feel so lucky to be able to travel doing the thing that I love uh, and sometimes yeah it's definitely exhausting but I think it's worth it when you're able to step on stage and play to people. Well the experience that you build up is is absolutely priceless I would say and interesting that you mentioned Japan and because of course wind bands are very big there you know and I'm sure they must have a massive appreciation towards what you do as a sax player it's I I really love Japan I've I've been there only once I played there last year um and the my saxophones are Japanese so I already felt a connection to Japan they're handmade in Japan and and yeah they have they have such a it's an interesting way the saxophone is, is so much bigger there in a way because it's they are incorporated into these wind bands and it's such a huge part of the education and the and the culture. And I'd love to, to play more in Japan and to learn more about that 
culture and that kind of the ethos and way of life they have I think is just completely fascinating yeah are there many concertos written for sax and wind bands there are a few um uh, there are some and there are some adaptations of concertos that already exist for wind band as well um, so it's actually something I'm working on at the moment <laughs> yeah fantastic there's there's quite a lot for percussion and wind band and ah. sometimes uh, those that have been written for symphony orchestra have then been arranged for wind band so they get played a lot in the states and then in the far east and so on because the standard of wind band playing is so so high you know so it is it is interesting but um, as a young musician, what has been some of the more unexpected things you may not have been prepared for, for, you know, when you left the Royal Northern College of Music? You, you know, have there been things that you've experienced um, as a professional musician that simply were not addressed or not talked about or um, you just hadn't come across as a student? Do you, do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. Um, they obviously can't prepare you for world travel you know that I get that but have there been any other things whether it's to do with the business side of thing or admin or or um, presentation or I don't know just all sorts of things it's funny because as I was studying um, I was kind of performing alongside already I was uh, because I'd been in BBC Musician that had given me such a huge platform and then the studying and starting the performing career kind of coincided in a way and then I left the Royal Northern because I moved to uh, the Guildhall to study with John and because everything was happening in London I I just needed to move because I was travelling so much um, so I think in a way I think for me at Music College everything is so so focused on music which of course that's what you want and and you go to music college to be completely immersed in music and to think only about music but I felt like I missed out on the experience of of the world I think we don't relate the music to the world and to to society somehow and its role in the world and how how important it is to our race and to our humanity in a way you know I would have loved to have done philosophy and and a sort of general knowledge to be to feel relevant as a musician rather than to be in a bubble that's separate from the rest of society and I think also um, to be encouraged to um, pass on the skills that you're learning and to be um, taught how to not necessarily taught but to be encouraged to engage with younger audiences and younger people so how to lead a workshop for example how to how to go into a school and engage a young group of children and show them what music has to offer is something I would really love to have experienced more um, mm. at Conservatoire and I think it would be fantastic if we could see even more there are already some amazing schemes but even more of this idea of it being a cycle that goes round so no matter where you are on the, the cycle whether you're the most incredible performer in the world or you've been playing for one week that somehow you have a connection so that we're all related as a kind of musical community and we're we're happy to share what we've learned and pass things pass things around on the the kind of like wheel of learning I suppose I think I would have liked to have had more of that so that I felt more prepared to to work with children yeah that's really interesting and I'm sure very helpful uh, you know for people to to hear you say that and and I remember you know when I used to be a visiting professor at the Royal which is now called the Royal Conservatoire of Music and Drama in Glasgow and 
um, I was about the age of the, the students there myself. It was, <laughs> it was so long ago. But what was so interesting and so incredibly um, wise and important that the, the percussion teachers did there, there were only two percussion teachers at the time, but they made sure, and this was just done off their own back, as it were, they made sure that the percussion students went into schools for the blind, schools for the deaf, or... Um, into care homes and all sorts of situations. So this was not part of the curriculum. And it, it was unbelievable the response that the students gave, that how enriching it was, how you know they discovered aspects of themselves that they had absolutely no idea. Some of them were so incredibly good um, and had a great manner with young people or with older people or um, you know they, they and some of them actually then went on to do uh, sound therapy and music therapy which they had never ever imagined themselves doing you know as part of the normal curriculum but it was just simply through this um, um, activity that the teachers themselves had generated and and it was amazing to see that because for me then eavesdropping as a you know going in there a couple of days a, a term it was incredible how that affected their actual playing you know and their, their general sort of way that they communicated and how easy they were then able to introduce their pieces to talk about the pieces to their audiences and so on so I think it had a massive impact so I can kind of recognize what you're saying but I think it's also interesting how during this time when we're all um, you, you know embracing technology as best as we can um, how the openness and communication and how the diversity of activities you know has really meant that my gosh music is for all you know, we have a readiness to share um, what we do and how we do it with people, as you say, who have maybe been playing for a week, you know, or first time they've picked up a sax or a pair of drumsticks or something, to, you know, communicating with someone like yourself who is a fully-fledged professional, you know, and, and that can only be a positive thing, surely. I think so. I think that sense of dialogue between the, the different stages and the I mean, you look at the kind the El Sistema project, for example, and that program. I think that is just such a fantastic way of engaging young young people, and to see that you can learn from the next stage above you, and you can see how you can progress to that, and and make friends with those people. And I think the the openness and taking away some of the the barriers that might exist between audience and performer, I think, has happened quite a lot in lockdown. People have become uh, had to be more personable because you've gone into somebody's home which is quite an extreme but you know yeah. for, for musicians to to broadcast and live stream we've actually been in their home which is very personal and therefore I think you just feel a more human connection to them and I think it doesn't have to be that you know you don't have to go into their living room but there are certain ways that we can um, kind of I think engage people on a on a on a deeper level and, and on the and a wider level more people Mm. Do you have a favourite medium of performance? I mean, do you prefer playing concertos or recitals or collaborating with other people or do you like that mixture? I really like the the mixture and the um, the 
with the saxophone being so versatile, being able to sit into different contexts and work with my ensemble and then work with an orchestra and play a recital and, and that kind of the way that you feed off the different musicians in different ways, I mm. find keeps everything really fresh and, and very exciting. Yeah, and you took part in the last night of the proms a couple of years ago and, um, you know, I can't think of another sax player who has... Oh, no, John Harl, he did John, Panic yeah. by, by Harrison Bertwistle. Now I do remember that. Oh, I remember that very, very clearly. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's so interesting because it's still talked about, which is yeah. absolutely fantastic. And I remember experiencing that piece. I think it was through the television rather than being there in person. And I was absolutely floored by it. I, I, I loved it, I have to say, because it did exactly what it said on the tin you know panic and so we knew we weren't <laughs> going to get a, a nice melody but <laughs> but what what experience you know did you did you have in, in taking part in such a big platform I mean it's pretty amazing I think it was quite a surreal experience it's something that I never imagined to happen never mind so early in my career I was 20 when I played and it just felt like such an honor to be playing at such a prestigious event and such a um, with such an incredible orchestra and was just the most I was just so grateful to have the opportunity and to be able to to play there and to be part of the a celebration of, of music mm. it was really really yeah incredible yeah. and as a young musician you know people are often reliant on reviews and uh, and what's your whole thought on that how do you handle reviews positive or negative reviews or sitting on the fence type reviews is that something that impacts you um in in any kind of way i try not to read them if i can or if i am going to read them i try and take everything with a a tub of salt <laughs> it doesn't it's whether it's positive i if i read a positive review and it's it's you know a, a very lovely review i don't want in any way to become complacent or to think that I'm fantastic or to think that what the reviewer is saying is true even um, because music is so subjective and it's so it, it, deeply and incredibly personal to every single person it's not it's not sport there isn't somebody who crosses the finish line first on a stopwatch it is so objective and so um, everybody's response is so different that I try and of course I, I you know I respect reviewers and I respect critics but for me it's not something that's particularly useful as a performer I don't know do, what, how, how do you well, feel like, about reviews it's something I'm a bit un, unsure yeah, about and, and I think it varies according to where you are in your career I think for me when I was a young young musician and where virtually every performance I gave was a first of of some sort, you know, I remember taking part in the last night of the proms. It was the first time a percussionist had ever, you know, been the featured soloist or um, first time that the Wigmore Hall had put on a percussion recital and so on and so forth. So I was totally reliant on the reviews, not just to promote myself as the musician, but to promote the repertoire and to promote the instruments mm -hmm. as well, because those were in the days when people didn't always know the difference between a marimba and a xylophone. So there's an awful lot of educating uh, to have been done. And so I was very much reliant on reviews and I read almost every single one of them. Um, you had to buy a paper, a newspaper, in order to, to read them. <laughs> And uh, and so I kept them all. And yes, I was I read every single word, and I tried to 
digest what was being said, but thankfully I kind of had the mental capability of thinking, right, do I, do I feel what's being said here? You know, do I take on board what's being said there and do I agree with that? Or is it something I need to think about and just, you know, sleep on it or whatever? It's never strictly, oh, my God, it's a bad review, therefore I'm a bad player. Or, oh, it's a good review, therefore I'm amazing. It was never like that. It was really just digesting what was being said and, and having the strength of character to, to think, right, how, <laughs> how, what meaning can I take from that? Um, there were often reviews whereby they might have mentioned that timpani was used in a concert and that there was no timpani there. So, you know, so they'd mistaken an instrument or maybe hadn't <laughs> even gone to the concert. And you knew instantly yeah. that, OK, that's a review that, you know, you wouldn't spend too many moments di digesting, really, or being affected by. Um, I think now it's very different because, um, of course, the whole audience can be reviewers and they can broadcast their views online and, and so on and through social media. And I think it's, it's really just, it's almost like um, your food diet. You know, you, you have a certain amount of vegetables and, and fruit and meat, veg or, or whatever you want to eat, but you're not going to always, you know, have hamburgers. You're not always going to eat chocolate. You're not always going to eat crisps or cookies and you'll be ill. And I think that we have to look at the, the overall uh, message and wake up and listen to ourselves ultimately because it can just be this barrage of, of um, words that are coming at us and, and thoughts that, you know, every time we pick our instrument up, we, we, we're almost starting from a, from a clean slate, you know, and I think we know ourselves what needs to be sorted out, as it were. So, mm -hmm. yeah, I think we, we all have different stages um, as regards to how we've we've dealt with with the reviews, really. So so quite interesting. So I only ask the question simply because you and I have had to really create repertoire, you know. So it isn't um, where there's already a hundred different interpretations of a, a saxophone, you know, concerto, you know, by John Harl yeah. or something. It's uh, you know we, we've got <laughs> a lot to to promote. Um, but what in your mind is the distinction between listening to music and participating in music? I think for me, it would be sometimes listening is participatory in that you are becoming a part of the, the sphere that the performer is creating, whether that be in a concert hall or from a record, you become part of the the dialogue and the communication that they're creating and you're being taken into their universe that they've created with this performance of mm. this piece and sometimes listening can be completely passive and we listen not really paying attention and not really and en being engaged and I think there's a definitely for me I think that's fine sometimes I am very happy to listen like that sometimes to particular kinds of music at particular types of times of the day but then participating I think can be actually playing in the music and being a part of the, an ensemble or a collective, I think is one of the most um, fulfilling and life-affirming experiences a person can ever have, whether they're young, old, again, have been playing for a week or 10 years, to be a part of some a collective experience with, with a massed mission, uh, being a part of 20 people who are all striving for the same thing, I think is one of the most exhilarating feelings 
in the world actually to be a part of something that really feels genuinely united and and together I think is incredible. Absolutely and do you think that you know with mental health being uh, a big topic that that we're uh, discussing and it is a consideration certainly at the moment as we're navigating through um, the coronavirus but how important is it that you know we listen to our inner voice or inner feelings um, you know we we as musicians, this is something that is almost inherent to, to what we do. We have to make decisions. No one else can really make those for us when we're on stage. Um, but is this something that you um, feel that you do consciously, unconsciously? Um, is it something that you encourage other people to do? I think as a musician and also just as a person, I'm constantly striving for authenticity. In a, in a world where you can create kind of whatever version of yourself you want to present online. You can be any person you want to be by showing little highlights of your life online and it not be true at all. For me, I'm just in a constant search of being authentic, whether that's through what I'm saying, the music I'm playing, the music I'm listening to. And I think, you know, almost more than ever, we need truth and authenticity and love and and we were searching for the the beauty in the world so um i think my inner voice is trying to encourage me and give me the confidence to do that and sometimes that's it's you know it's very easy to say i just want to be myself but that's it's it's kind of a, a constant for me a constant uh progression of trying to work out what that is and how i can um best reach people and help people and work out what i want to do as a musician and, and with music. Um, so I think I am, I try to be as tuned into it as possible. Yeah, no, and it's so, you know, it's so encouraging that you, you say that. And I'm sure that many young person will be influenced by that and really interested in, in, you know, what you're saying is just literally be yourself, you know, be as truthful with yourself <laughs> and other people as as possible. And, and, uh, and then the good can, and, and better understanding can come from from those situations and and just thinking about you know being the performer and and because a, a lot of times I'm asked do you get nervous when you perform and uh, do you get nervous I do and on various in various stages in various ways depending on the concert sometimes they can completely hit me out of the blue but I think for anything that you deeply care about and that you're deeply passionate about of course you're going to feel some level of nerves because you want something to be you want somebody to enjoy something you want to be able to give a message to somebody you want to be able to communicate so for me when you care about something um and when it's, it's you know so deeply important to you I think of course you're going to be nervous regardless of whether you're playing to five people or five thousand mm. people so I feel nervous for every single performance mm. uh, on some level or another yeah. it might be you know kind of debilitating nerves that I've learned to deal with or it might be just a slight you know I might not feel it until I walk out on stage and, and it's on varying levels but yeah I feel it every time do you still feel nervous when you perform? yes absolutely yes yeah. and I think if if we're all truthful about it we would you know feel some aspect of nerves and I think mm. what it does for me as regards to my listening is that it absolutely not always, I have to say, but um, it, it really, really, in one respect, it's hard to explain because in one respect, it, it gives you this razor sharp kind of vision towards the sound that you're creating. And 
everything that's happening around you. But at the same time, it sort of gives you that feeling where you have to zoom out and step back from the situation. So it's kind of a, 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 an odd sort of situation where you're zooming in, but at the same time you're zooming out. And <laughs> you know, sometimes you can zoom in so much that you, you begin to lose, you think about it too much and you lose the plot a little bit. And then other times you're, you're zooming too far out and it's finding that balance really. But I think it's very important that we keep checking up on players, young, young players, um, because constantly it, it's a question that comes up and they, mm-hmm. they, they find it difficult to navigate and they want to know that other people also feel nervous and, and so what do you do about it? And the fact that we can talk about it and that it is inherent to, to all of us one way or another, sports people, you know, people giving a speech or an audition or a job interview mm-hmm. or whatever, it, it's something we all um, can feel and relate to. Um, so I think it is an important uh, topic to to share. I think with with young young players coming coming through to see if the various ways that we can all deal with it really. So um, I'm going to just uh, wind down, Jess, because I'm I'm conscious of the time that you've given, and and I really very much appreciate this. And I know a lot of people will be inspired by you know what you've been saying. And um, but just uh, as a few last little things that I would like to know, what are other interests do you have other than music? Um, well, in lockdown, I actually really enjoyed cooking, which I which sounds so boring. No, <laughs> I just... no, lovely. <laughs> Oh, a good old Yorkshire meal or, or uh, have you been experimenting with other different types of food? Yeah, all different types of food and making food from scratch and really kind of appreciating food and, and the, the, you know, the energy that it give, gives us, the, you know, the, the whole process of making it in a way can be quite similar to music in, in a weird way. And I also love walking and being outside. Um, coming from the Lake District, you just oh, grow up in this most beautiful area, and then you don't really you take it for granted until you move away. And now I live in London, and I just crave the outdoors. Oh, absolutely! <laughs> I, I can totally get that, and I think um, it's certainly something I've enjoyed since uh, lockdown started. Was getting out, walking, cycling, you know, just doing all sorts of things that I wouldn't normally have time to do. So, absolutely, I can appreciate. Uh, what you're saying there and if you were stranded on a desert island with one piece of music what would it be oh you know the piece i really keep coming back to a lot um there are two there's anders hilborg's second violin concerto that i Mm. keep uh, listening to kind of over and over again almost obsessively and finding something new and every time and then actually in lockdown i was learning the bach cello suites uh, on saxophone, not on cello, <laughs> um, and there I just kind of, I'm just having a growing love and a growing understanding of Bach and how so much of our music has descended from his his uh, his genius. And I and I don't use that word lightly, but really his his understanding of of humanity and of musical form and structure and and the drama of what happens to the notes and how something can become a magical world. Mm. So I think maybe it would be Bach because you can hear almost every form of music since from Bach, which sounds quite predictable, but I think it's really true. I think it is true, actually. It's just probably the most timeless composer we've ever had. And funnily enough, since lockdown, um, 
I've been sight reading through all of his uh, preludes and fugues on the piano, can you believe? I used to play some of them when I was a student and as a young pianist, but it's just been incredible to revisit, you know, and f- from a, a technical point of view, musical point of view, just, just, it's just amazing. I can't, I can't tell you. So I can absolutely say that all musicians must, at some point, you know, have a little peep um, at at Bach, and and it will influence your playing no end, one way or another. Well, you're continuing to influence so many of us, whether we're seasoned performers, seasoned musicians, or picking an instrument up for the first time. And I just want to thank you for everything you're doing, um, for the graciousness and enthusiasm that you you do it with. And it's just absolutely fantastic to have this moment to, to chat with you. So I just want to say thank you very much, Jess. Oh, thank you so much for having me. That was really, really wonderful. You're to talk very to you. thank welcome. You. Thank you. Take care. <laughs> you too. Thanks, Evelyn. I would like to say a very special thank you to Audio Network for supporting my podcast. Thank you so much for listening. See you in my next one.